You're listening to Flux Pod. My name is Matthew Perpetua. This episode features the uh, artist, the cartoonist, the graphic novelist, Julia Griffrere. We're going to talk pretty much exclusively about the Smashing Pumpkins and Billy Corgan in this episode. I think we're going to, I think you'll be interested in this, uh, whether you like the pumpkins or not. We're going to come at this from, I think, some unusual angles in, in some cases. But uh, that's what we're doing today. I uh, just want to remind you, as usual, that the episodes that come out on Wednesdays are free, but the episodes on Saturday are for Patreon subscribers only. And I want you to get those. I want I want good things for your life. And for you to get those good things for your life, $5 a month, patreon.com slash luxblog. Also, if you like the show, tell other people about it. Tell people about, you know, just share one episode you think is good. There's one that's a clip show. That's like a best of. Share that one. You know, whatever. But yeah, uh, word of mouth counts for a lot. Uh, no special placement in the uh, pod stores. Uh, that takes a lot of money. So only, you might notice only the big corporate stuff's there now. But yeah, that's that. We're going to just do it. This is uh, Julia Graffair. I'm going to talk to Smashing Pumpkins. Julia, can you tell the audience who you are and what you do? Yeah, uh, my name is Julia Graffair. I'm a cartoonist and... Uh, I it's always like a weird thing to say people usually prefer the term cartoonist to like graphic novelist which is seen as kind of highfalutin uh but the comics that I make are not very cartoony so usually I say I'm a graphic novelist and yeah. I apologize if that sounds pretentious I, I guess to kind of really simplify it they're they're, they're pretty goth <laughs> yeah I guess so yeah um I have published three um, like kind of horror romance comics with uh, Fantagraphics and uh, what are they called? I've been in. Oh, sorry. They're <laughs> called uh, the most recent one is uh, vision that came out last August. Uh, and it's about a Victorian spinster who uh, is having sex with a ghost that lives in her mirror. Um, there's Laid Waste, which is about the bubonic plague, and Black is the Color, which is about a, a dying sailor that falls in love with a mermaid. And this is why Publishers Weekly calls you one of the foremost contemporary horror cartoonists. That is correct. <laughs> <laughs> there. That, that is as much self-promo as you need to do. <laughs> oh, I can do more. I'm not... I'm not one of those shrinking violet cartoonists. Oh, I mean, you you also have like a lot of a like t-shirts and things like that. Sure. Yeah. Uh, I have a threadless store that um, surprises me how much traffic it gets because I don't really promote it very much. My username is Thorazos on everything. T-H-O-R-A-Z-O-S. Uh, I have an Etsy store and a Patreon and all that shit. Do we curse on your podcast? Oh, yeah. Go ahead. Okay. I, I have no uh, no censors and I have no like advertisers who can be upset about anything. Nice. Oh, I also, I have a podcast now. Yes. Um, that's new. It's a really good one. 
thank you very much, Matthew. It means a lot to me that you think so. Um, it's called Lament Configuration, and it's just me and my best friend Gretchen talking about whatever uh, interests us, which is usually gross and sad. Yeah, and there's also a fair amount of like, talking about like, the creation of art as you're both artists. Yeah, Gretchen is a novelist, a prose novelist. And uh, yeah, people, we asked people to send us in questions. So we uh, end up talking a lot about, uh, you know, both of us are full time uh, artists. We don't have other sources of income. Um, and we're both, I think, pretty confident about what we do. Like we're at a point in our careers where we understand what our process is. And a lot of young artists struggle with that. Uh, right. There's, there's a few, there's a fair chunk of the episodes you've done that are really just you trying to talk people out of their own insecurities about making things. Yeah. Um, it's, I think really challenging for people to, uh, to sounds so obvious to say, but like you, you have something inside that you want to say and it's like scary to bring it out and let people see it. And you really just kind of have to suck it up and do it anyway. And people think there's a, there's a trick to it beyond that. And there's not. (laughs) (laughs) You just, Yeah. Oh, God. Um, so we're going to talk about the Smashing Pumpkins today. And as you were saying that, it occurred to me like, wow, Billy Corgan is just an incredible example of someone who just completely obliterated all of that and just will make things constantly and put them out constantly. And yeah, that in and of itself, I think, is very honorable, even though that's one of the things that makes people dislike him or turn against him or just lose interest in him. Mm hmm. I was thinking about that when I told Sean that I was going to be talking to you about the Smashing Pumpkins. I was like, you know, I think that Billy Corgan has been a really big influence on me as the kind of artist that I wanted to become because he, you know, it's not that he doesn't have a filter. Like he can be shy and awkward and like, weird in his self-presentation in a way that like he's clearly self-conscious but uh he also uh, will just really like let it all hang out like he uh is a real maximalist and uh he truly believes in himself yeah yeah In in the way that you have to right Exactly. And, you know, he's an incredible guitar player. He's a great songwriter. um, And I think a great lyricist too. But the thing that, you know, having those kind of skills is not enough. Like there's so many people who are, have the skills to make good art, but that like egomania (laughs) is the thing that, uh, separates the men from the boys you know yeah so what was what was your uh earliest encounters with the smashing pumpkins um okay so this is an interesting story actually when i was uh 
when I was in middle school, I had a series of um, really severe allergic reactions to poison ivy because I was uh, going to like day camp at the Audubon Society and going on camping trips with them and stuff. And uh, when I would have any kind of contact with poison ivy, and I assume this is still the case, I would just, my entire body would swell up and uh, be covered with like crusty sores. And it's really hellish, especially for like a 12 year old girl, you know, like I couldn't even recognize myself in the mirror. I could barely open my eyes. It was awful. So uh, yeah. Um, And so that happened, I think two or three times. And that was the first time that I really remember watching MTV because I was homesick for like two weeks uh, and I would just watch MTV all day. And one of those periods was uh, right around the time that Bullet with Butterfly Wings came out, which would have been in 95. Yeah, the end of 1995, around probably October or so. I mean, Melancholy came out then, but uh, Bullet wasn't the first single, was it? It was, yeah. Or it was. Yeah. So I guess that would be like around September or October. Yeah, so it would have been, mm mm-hmm. And uh, it wasn't the only song that I was really taken with at that time. But uh, yeah, I remember seeing it over and over and like, I I was like a, I would have just turned 13, I guess. Uh, You know, it's a relatable (laughs) song for a little kid. Yes, which is you know, not like to... most kids feel like Job. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> even if they don't, they don't have the words to articulate that. Uh, you know, and it's a very like of that era video, like one of those alternative videos where like somebody is crouching on a throne and people are covered with mud. And <laughs> when I think of it, I just remember like how contrasty it is. It has that really extreme contrast and kind of it's also saturated in the way that things are very saturated in the 90s Mm -hmm. i think that might have been the debut of the zero t-shirt it was yeah it's kind of Mm -hmm. like the weird pocket of time where he where he has hair but he's wearing the zero shirt and then yeah that's the that's the real uh the quintessential billy to me yeah because only like a month or so later, like he debuts the shaved look and he's never gone back. I don't think he necessarily has the option to. Mm, yeah, he's 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 bald by choice and by necessity. Yeah, I mean, and it really looked good on him for I mean, like I think now he looks a little weirder, a little more Uncle Festery. But <laughs> I, I mean, he because he, he has a really beautiful face and it just really suited him for a pretty long time. Yeah, um, and that's when you look at the earlier Smashing Pumpkins, which I, you know, when I got into them, I started with Melancholy and kind of worked my way backwards. Um, But the, like, late 80s, early 90s Smashing Pumpkins, he's like, has this really, uh, like, beautiful face and like 
long curly hair and just like always this very dreamy expression and uh you know he has like a great rock star face i think it's like very unique yeah i mean i've always appreciated that there's kind of a feminine quality to both his face and his voice yeah for sure and i think that he leans into that like i think he is very much one of these guys who's like um, embracing his feminine side, whatever kind of gender essentialist shit that means. But, you know. Right. Like, like you know, if Billy Corgan was in his early to mid 20s now, he might have identified differently. Sure. I could see that. I mean, he did perform in drag sometimes, not often, but. It was known to happen. And he, you remember, he used to wear those really pretty shirts, those psychedelic shirts. Oh, yeah, kind of like the Paisley stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, like that, that Gish uh, Siamese Dream Era look is really just fantastic. Such a good look. And he yeah, used to wear like these beautiful a, one, vintage coats, like these kind of like. Uh, yes, with the fur. Yeah. I remember this one thing from MTV that's burned into my mind where he was on 120 Minutes. I think it was Louis mm-hmm. Largent was the host on that episode. And Louis Largent's like, I really like your coat, Billy. And he's wearing kind of a fur coat. And Billy's like, you can't have it. (laughs) He had a pink Paisley Telecaster, too. Mm. Beautiful guitar. Yeah, I actually found a picture of that recently. That's uh, I have I have an Instagram that's all like photos from magazines. And there's a great picture of him. It's kind of it's kind of like the perfect description. It's kind of like the perfect uh combination of all the things we just said about him in that era i think it was around uh, 1992 so Mm -hmm. he's got the beautiful hair he's got the dreamy look on his face he's playing that guitar he's wearing this like beautiful uh colorful shirt (laughs) very far from like the kind of nosferatu look that he's had for a while yeah that's interesting right that's a really interesting switch um i think it is like his divorced guy look, <laughs> you know? Right. I mean, <laughs> yes, right. Because yeah, that, that, that's well, that's that's almost exactly it. Because like, uh, well, when did he get divorced? Like ninety five or ninety six? I think. Look, ninety five. I think. Yeah, it was kind of like right before Melancholy came out. If I recall, he, he was like twenty eight when Melancholy came out. I think. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Is that crazy? Yeah. I mean, where, where he's like, you know, it's pretty young, I think, from, from my perspective now, but it's still like old. For like, yeah. I mean, but, you know, that's his third album. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, I guess, technically the fourth, if you want to count Pisces Iscariot. Uh-huh. Uh, but yeah, you know, he'd been Which is full of bangers. Grinding. Like, that could, be a, that could be a real album. Oh, God. I think those B-sides are great. I mean, like, some of the best songs he ever did are on that one. I mean, Starla and Frail and Bedazzled and things like that. Oh, my Mm -hmm. God.
one called Obscured. Oh, Obscured is very good. We were talking earlier this week about post-rock, and there are certain alternative songs that I think uh, set me up to get into post-rock a couple years later, and Starla is definitely one of them, and Silverfuck also, yeah. where they just jam for like eight minutes, ten minutes, not that long on the a Silver Mount Zion scale. But for me, a kid who's used to listening to pop songs, I was like amazed that I could just vibe to this for so long. Yeah, I mean, even their immediate peers weren't doing songs like that. Mm-hmm. You know, Nirvana certainly was not doing like a Silver Fuck, a Pearl Jam soundgrade. None of them were. I mean, Sonic Youth. Oh, yeah. But I mean, I think Sonic Youth are kind of a generation up from them. Yeah. And also kind of not ended up not being quite the same scale. Right. In a way, I think that the Smashing Pumpkins are. I mean, Billy as a megalomaniac might disagree, but. they, They do sort of seem like they got bigger than they should have like they they made more sense as a a band with a cult following (laughs) do you know what i mean yeah i mean i think he he very much wanted to be like the biggest rock star that was definitely his mentality and uh yeah he was very competitive with his peers (laughs) but especially kurt cobain and you know there's there's also the complication of like he was with courtney love before she was with kurt And so, you know, there's that whole tension of, I think he just felt like so incredibly competitive with him, but also just kind of like, I think, I think he always felt like, oh, this guy has me beat. I cannot compete with this guy, even as as good as I am, there's still this other guy. Yeah. Well, I think another thing that's really charming about Billy is that uh, there's a sense that what he does is effortful. Like Mm. there's certain people who like Kurt and I think Courtney and Trent Reznor and like most people who become celebrities on that scale where they're uh, household names, but also cool. um, They have like a certain natural charisma, like an ease with themselves, uh, which is the essence of coolness. And I don't know if I've never met Billy, so I couldn't say if he has that or not, but I think that he never felt that he had that. He definitely, he has the attitude of a person who is pretty sure that they are not uh, being appreciated or. um, I think some of it's physical because I don't think he feels as at ease in his body as the other people you've mentioned. Like right. he feels he gawky. He's very, very tall. He has that birthmark, you know, he ended up balding fairly young, you know, yeah. even, even being like an interesting looking person, a person who could be quite beautiful. He just always had this gawkiness to him and, you know, it's endearing, but it's not like, it, it's not going to get people as like turned on as, as Kurt Cobain or Trent Reznor would, who just kind right. of radiate like, yeah, as you said, like this effortless charisma who just kind of have like this strong sex vibe about them. 
Billy Corgan yeah, doesn't have a sex He's not exactly vibe. sexy. Yeah. I mean, like, I think he's sexy to me. Like, I could, I could name moments and photos uh, of Billy that are are definitely sexy, but he uh, doesn't overtly have the vibe of like a guy who fucks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he doesn't really even have any like sexually explicit songs. Like his songs are very romantic. Yes, that's true. It's like. Yeah, I'm kind of rocking. I'm sure there's something because he just has such an incredible volume of material. But yeah, I don't he, know. like when he does talk about sex, like, yeah, he, he's the guy who writes by starlight. Right. Or, you know, if it's like. XYU is probably like his most sexual song and it's like it's just anger. It's furious. demented. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like part of it being vulgar is that there's a, a scorn and a disappointment. Like, he doesn't want love to be that way. He's, it's like he sees sexuality as tawdry. extremely idealistic if you just kind of mm-hmm. look at it, how he writes and yeah oh, the guy who wrote tonight tonight is idealistic yeah. <laughs> yes i mean we could have just mentioned many of the songs but yeah that one i think is like kind of uh i think that song really is the apex of something in him uh mm-hmm. and it's, i think it's part of why that's a song that you know he never they pretty much always play that song when they play shows regardless uh-huh. of what phase of his career he's in because you know it's just a song that i think it's it is kind of like his signature song and it's also something that just always works regardless of what arrangement it has like there's something about the sentimentality of that song that is just it's sort of overpowering like um i i mean i'm not I, i'm not even a very huge fan of that song but the times where i've seen it's him perform it it's romantic. overwhelming yes yeah um I think I heard it recently, like at the grocery store or something, and I just started crying. It's like, it's, it's 
very, very sweet. And a lot of his songs are like that. But uh, like you said, I think Tonight Tonight is the one that goes the hardest. Um, it has those huge melodramatic strings. Yeah. The video is very, very beautiful also. It's, yeah, the Valerie and Jonathan Ferris video. Jonathan mm-hmm. Deaton. Yeah. Um, I, have, I have a memory uh, that just kind of came to mind that has surfaced of, of uh, being maybe like 15 years old in, in the class. And uh, this one guy uh, who I went to school with who was kind of like a, a jockish kind of guy. I just remember him saying very, like, very sincerely about Tonight Tonight, it is a very special song. And it's oh. true. It is a very special song. I'm glad it touched you, Brett. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Brett. Thanks for that. in the airplane flies high um there's a tonight reprise and mostly the songs on that on that single are much more stripped down and like shy or resentful i don't think are there any rockers on that one at all no i mean they kind of like uh they kind of group the songs together so that one was all kind of acoustic kind of songs it's like Melodory Magpie is probably the most upbeat one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Rotten Apples is on that one. I've yeah. I've listened to that Jupiter's in a Lament. Time. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and uh, Medelia of the Gray Skies. That's a really beautiful song. Yeah. Do you remember that oh, one? God. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I haven't listened to some of these in a long, long time. Um, the ones that I, I listen to more frequently, I, I, there's a couple songs on the 1979 one that I like a lot. Like oh, Set yeah. the Rated Jerry is a huge favorite of mine. Set the Rated Jerry might be their best song.
I still can't believe that like that got cut from that record. <laughs> but yeah. you know, I think about it, like I don't know where I'd put it on, on Melancholy, but I just remember like something to the effect of like Flood trying to be like, "Are you sure about this?" Mm. Or, or or maybe actually it was Flood who talked him out of you putting it on. It was one or the other, but. It it was like out of all of those extra songs, the one that was closest to being on the record. If I had to choose where on Melancholy I would put "Set the Rated Jerry," uh, I think you I could figured put out it, what I would do. I'm curious what you would do. Okay, I think you could put it on at the end of the second disc. Um, and like in that last sweep of songs? It's partly because I I don't like those songs very much. Uh, like maybe I would put it in the place of Beautiful or Oh, I really Lily. like Beautiful. <laughs> I, I would drop like We Only Go, we only go yeah. Out at Night. Oh, yeah. That would be a great place to put it. There you yeah. go. I mean, I figured out like what I would do, though. I would I would not touch the, the second disc. Oh. I would just I, my my least favorite song on that record has always been to forgive. And I would just really? like swap out to forgive. I would just take out to forgive and put Seth Ray to Jerry after Bowl of Wings. That's a dreary song, but I, I feel like it is a very personal song. And I, I would keep it because I want him to have his little stepson moment. <laughs> oh, God. You know, yeah. it's like it's a, a space. It's literally a song, a song about having a bad birthday party as a child. Uh huh. It's that little kid sadness. But like that. It's true that there's really not a lot of other songs that have like the the exact feeling of that one. But what I, what I, part of what's so compelling to me about him as an artist is um, that he's so self-serious. Like he, he says this kind of stuff that is so melodramatic um, that, I, even as a teenager, felt like maybe I would be ashamed to say something like that. But, like, why? What, like, that's a real feeling. He says in To Forgive, uh, I knew my loss before I even learned to talk. Like, that's, oh, God. that's a lot. That's heavy. Yeah. It's funny. Like, you, you, I remember on one of the episodes of your show, you were talking about, like, seeing childhood, like, even baby photos of Gretchen. And she just <laughs> always has this look of sorrow about her. That's like, just her face. <laughs> I don't think she was actually a sad child. Yeah. But, you know, maybe she was. Maybe she was having that uh, that Billy Corgan to forgive moment. Yeah, maybe. But, yeah, I think that uh, to forgive is is the space boy of melancholy oh i love space boy it's really beautiful (laughs) (laughs) that one's about his uh younger brother Mm -hmm. yeah
I, I, I can't, like, does he have MS? I can't remember what affliction his brother has. I can't tell you exactly what's wrong with Billy's younger brother. <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> I think there probably was a time at which I knew that, but I could tell you his birthday yeah, and his I, middle I think name. The same. A lot of other stuff about him, but not that. Yeah, the, the the way like this information gets filed away and then like some part of your brain is like, actually, let's put something else there. You don't really need that. Yeah, I hung on to a lot of that information, a surprising amount. There was like a Twitter meme, one of those ones where you quote tweet with the answer to a question uh, that was like, what's the song? What's the album that you could um, remember every lyric to and sing it all the way through with no help? And for me, it's definitely Siamese Dream, and I don't think I've listened to that all the way through for years. That's the one I listen to the most. Me too. Out of all of those records, it's the it's just an unimpeachable record. It's perfect. It's just, yeah, there's just I I can't name a flaw in it. No. Although I can do that thing where I could take one song out and replace it if I could. Okay. I would replace Quiet with Frail and Bedazzled. Yeah, I think that's fair. But quiet's fine. Castrate boys you know? to the bone. Yeah, God. He goes so hard. The thing that's interesting about that record, and it's kind of written into the record, is that was a record that came after dealing with writer's block. Mm-hmm. And oh, it must be so hard uh, to I mean, have writer's the song block Hummer at specifically about. <laughs> I'm sorry. I said it must be so hard to have writer's block at 23. <laughs> But yeah, and that song Hummer is specifically about the ecstatic joy of, of coming through the other side of it. That's a beautiful song. Uh, I, I keep saying it's a beautiful song, but the feeling of being oppressed by yourself for a long time and then having a moment of grace where you're like, oh, I, I'm, I'm not. Like, suddenly I can see the sun or whatever it really i think it really captures that In my experience, I can't think of there's lots of songs that are about the act of writing, you know, the act of even writing a song, and, and especially in that way where it is that kind of incredible triumph over, yeah, that self-oppression. It's interesting because that I'm thinking about the lyrics to Hummer and they're not, like, I think it's just, it's much more the music that tells that story. Like the the lyrics of a lot of songs on Siamese Dream are, are pretty abstract. And I guess that's often true of him is that he uses like phrases that don't really make sense as a sentence or, or you know, will 
use a word that uh a word choice that's very idiosyncratic um But when he says, uh, when I woke up from that sleep, I was happier than I'd ever been. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the other thing that's interesting about that song, I, I wrote about this song oh. a few years ago, um, is that, you know, there's also the parts of that song where he's like, yeah, I love you. It's true. Do you feel love is real? I mean, that's just like and filler. Those are kind of secondary to those concerns, but you kind of feel like, okay, maybe this is part of why he, he woke up in some way. I feel like that's just like the scrambled eggs, huh. <laughs> you know? But yeah, I, I think you really hit the, the, the really crucial part of that song that I woke up from that sleep. I was happier than I'd ever been. Mm -hmm. And I think that rocket has the same, like kind of ecstatic, like having those two yeah. songs back to back is really nice. Yeah. That seems very deliberate. I think one of the things I really love about uh, especially Siamese Dream era pumpkins is how physical those songs are. I mean, a lot of this is because of Jimmy Chamberlain mm -hmm. and he's just a, an exceptional drummer. You know, he's a, he, he, he's extremely powerful, like physically powerful drummer, but he also has like the grace of, uh, of a jazz player. You get the sense that so he it, has the most respect for Billy of anybody else in the band other than Billy. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, they have a real, a real chemistry that when they are not working together, it, it especially Billy kind of needs him. He's like, yeah, it's like I a mean, romance. The other they make the band, each other make more sense. Yeah, and like I think there's, I think Jimmy Chamberlain understands the way he writes more than anyone else. Yeah, mm -hmm. and like what his songs need to really go over. Um, yeah, there is a kind of a, a romance to that kind of when people have that kind of kismet where like, you know, and you, you think about how like these bands come together, like in, largely by chance. It's not like you are somehow paired with the perfect person for you. Yeah. Jimmy was uh, the mean, last person to join the band. I don't even, how did they yeah. find him? Like through an ad, I think. Right. Or you just think about like, you know, the hat, like the, how, how do the Beatles all just happen yeah. to be the great guys to meet each other, you know, and, and down the line, but it's like, it's the, the, the magic of, of those two guys. It really is like, as it, it may as well just be a romantic chemistry. Mm -hmm. thing, the, 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 the physicality of it, or it just really, I, I think this is something that I don't feel as much in a lot of like more modern bands. And I think there's a lot of there's other 90s bands, I think, that have this similar kind of incredible physicality to them where it really feels like this dramatic thing happening in a room. Yeah, I mean, it and, feels it you know, has like a, a almost like a hair metal energy. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, especially when you listen to a song like uh, Geek USA or yes. Silver Fuck, it really just there, there's this incredible, you know, because. And, and Siva from Gish, mm -hmm. like those songs that kind of like swing between uh, like real yeah, like metal harsh dynamic shifts. <laughs> yeah. But, but also, but they have those moments of delicacy yeah. that, that only makes the hard parts harder. Yeah, they do. He loves to just like have a little whispery part in it. Sprinkle all my kisses on your head. You know? <laughs>
suits his voice too. It yeah, he like has. Little, I mean, he, kind of a little childish part. It's almost like it reminds me of Snoop Dogg, <laughs> which I know is mm. weird, but like because his voice is high and soft, um, and it is really powerful when he says something that is. Uh, Oh, when he when he kind of goes up a step in his voice in a playful way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I can't think I, of an example of Snoop Dogg saying something serious, but like. Yeah, I could hear I could hear it in my head, but I couldn't like. But you know what I mean. Impression of it, yeah. Like especially, yeah, no, I, yeah. I know exactly what you mean. And it, I think that you lose that when you, uh, you know, with the Pumpkins live, that is hard to do. Um. So a song like Tonight Tonight, I think, kind of suffers from being in an arena show because <laughs> he has to scream it and it's not great sounding. I think, you know, it's funny. I've, I've, lis- I've listened and watched like, like footage of them in the 90s. And the conclusion I come to is I think they had really bad sound engineering. Uh. I think they just had a really bad sound guy and like, like there was really no reason for him to to do things that he was doing with his voice yeah. at that time. Um, and it's stuff that like he doesn't do now. <laughs> like he can sing much better now. And I think there's, there's other people I can think of from the same era where it's like, I think some people just have like, they're just making weird sound choices on stage. Or I think like maybe he has the guitar so loud in the monitor that he can't hear himself at all. Mm. Well, that's really that's, that's a shame. speculation, but yeah, but, but yeah, and the, the like live stuff from the pumpkins that you hear from like during like their classic era is really hit or miss. Yeah, um, and the parts where it's like a big guitar song, uh, and there's like a wall of sound that he likes to do, that's good. Um, but Did you ever see when they played Disarm in the kind of heavy metal style on one of the MTV award shows? Uh, I mean, probably. I I have definitely seen videos of them playing Disarm live in that way. Yeah, and I just remember like it was. Like, I think there's one on Euphoria, maybe. Like, terrible. Right, uh, that one's better than what. But when they did it on MTV, uh, it's probably the regular MTV awards probably, I guess, 1994, if I'm guessing. But yeah, it's. I remember that being just like, oh, that was rough. Yeah. Even as, as a kid, you know? <laughs> it's like, oh, a little rough, Billy. Yeah, when they... Uh, them playing live acoustic is, uh, is much more consistent, I think. Was their version of Landslide the first you heard, or were you already familiar yeah. with... Yeah, no, that? yeah, it definitely was. I mean, I knew it was a cover because it has, uh, I just could sense that there was something different about it. Uh, but yeah, but Landslide is not a song that I especially like. Like, I think it's a good song. It just doesn't mean a lot to me personally. I I mean, I prefer the Pumpkins version (laughs) to the Fleetwood Mac version, but I think that's partly because it was the first one I knew as well. Mm. 
I mean, it's also, I mean, it's, it's pretty, he, he was pretty crucial in like kind of popularizing that song. Was like he? once he covered it, yeah. a few other people yeah. covered it. And then, uh, yeah, but I mean, I, I remember reading it. There was an article about this. Uh, I think it was maybe in Rolling Stone at some point that was kind of tracing the lines. And like, it really was like Corgan setting that in motion. Um, you know, and the, they did the version of it on like, what was it the dance? Mm-hmm. And, you know, and then I moved from there. And then, like, I think the thing that really made that song go from, like, a beloved song to just being kind of, like, a standard was probably... Like, the, one of their best-known the, the songs. The Dixie Chicks version. Yeah. Sorry? I said, uh, I think yeah. it's one of Fleetwood Mac's best-known songs now. Yeah. It's interesting. And it was not a single. Yeah. No. It's interesting to... Well, it was a single for the dance, though, wasn't it? Yes. But, I mean, like, in the, yeah, the original yeah. lifespan of Fleetwood Mac. Um, It's interesting to look at the songs that the pumpkins chose to cover. Uh, Cause I, ha- I maybe just to retroactively justify like my intense interest in them, but uh, I think of them as like a goth band. I really think that they are. I think there's an argument to be made there. Uh, especially if you listen to um, like <laughs> their pre-gish stuff. Uh, which I don't know if you have listened to. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, But, and then I was thinking, well, (laughs) like they covered like uh, isolation and. um, I was thinking of Depeche Mode. Never Let Me Down. down Yeah. That's a really good cover. I, I love that version. There's like clearly an influence there from like, uh, and possibly also because they they were playing those early songs with a drum machine, right? Which is a much more like goth music setup, <laughs> right? And, uh, and they end up kind of like circling back to that on a door, right? That's that's interesting. I I have seen a door called their worst album. And I don't think that's true. I mean, like, I, I mean, I, I mean, either. do you mean like of the 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 original era? I don't know. Because they definitely I made worse records. The link? I don't <laughs> after the shit. original era, um, you know, or or records that are just kind of like mediocre. I mean, um, I do remember like staying up to see the premiere of I, and being like, "What the fuck?" <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just not expecting that. Uh, and the end is the I beginning is the door. end. 
yeah, no, it's very good. Uh, I, I like it, it more than Machina, for sure. Yeah, me too. I mean, look, Machina has like songs on it I like a lot, but it also has some songs I really don't. Yeah, I never. I that's right when I dropped off. Like, Adore was my last Smashing Pumpkins album because I. Let's see. That came out in '98, which is when I turned 16. Um, and I was just like, I was getting into indie music then. At that point, I was listening to like Stereolab and Rachel's, and I was, yeah, I bought my first 33 album when I was 15, I remember. Uh, so at that point, like being into the Smashing Pumpkins was a, a little bit in poor taste to me yeah i think a lot of people i mean i i felt some version of this too um i think i had a little bit more loyalty but it was definitely one of those things where i was like i've i know i felt disappointed um it wasn't that i didn't like the album in particular it was just you know the whole thing was much too mainstream mm. and obvious Machina also sounds weird. It is it is really like compressed in such a weird way that it feels kind of thin. Is Stand Inside Your Love on Machina? Yes. It is, isn't that's, it? That's a single from that record, yeah. That's a beautiful song and maybe their best video. <laughs> I don't recall that video. What is that video like? It's like a Aubrey Beardsley Salome kind of a vibe. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's like shot to kind of look like a silent movie or... Um, oh, yeah kind of a, a art nouveau like uh, a thing where like Billy is like John the Baptist and there's like a kind of a Yelena Yemchuk-esque like lady with big black hair and like coal around her eyes and there's like a weird fat king kind of a guy but it's like this is all uh, like I got a little older after seeing that and read uh oscar wilde's salome and saw the illustrations that aubrey beardsley did for that and it's like directly a reference to that which is very romantic also yeah and actually now that i think about it i believe that the video opens with um with a quote from that uh from oscar wilde's salome um something about love being stronger than death or some shit you know <laughs> yelena yenchuk was really interesting exp- uh influence on him kind of I mean, interesting i love her and i i think probably much too cool for him <laughs> but she i think she did some great things uh aesthetically for them i think she directed the 33 video which is i think my personal favorite yeah uh, i think she also Hawkins directed video. zero am i am i right about that I, yeah, I think or so. Or should you just do the, the the photograph for the cover of Zero? N- no, I, I think recall. she directed it. I mean, I know she did the cover of Adore, and I, I've always really loved the cover yeah. of Adore. Yeah, and she, um, I think her portraits of him um, in his like early bald phase are really sensitive and really beautiful. Oh yeah, there's that a photo whole... of him in the packaging of a door where mm-hmm. he's kind of like looking uh I know to the, the exact to the left. Mean, yeah. Right. It's like he just looks so soft and 
he, he looks angelic. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, and they have, you know, um, they're, they're black and white photos, but they have like a, a little bit of warmth to them. Yeah. Like a slight sepia tone. Yeah. There's like a, um, I'm not a, weren't you a photography major? Help me out here. I was, it's yeah. like almost a daguerreotype vibe. That would be a little more lo-fi, but yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. It's, it's, it's something that's definitely <laughs> I mean, I don't think it's literally very old. Yeah. Well, actually, no, it's, there are, you know, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm paging through this right now. There are some very daguerreotypish things that are in the, the packaging. It's designed to look old is what I would say. Um, and her, uh, the artwork in the airplane flies high booklet is also her photography, I believe. Yeah. I think that's, there's something lovely about um, when a photographer does a portrait of someone they love. Oh yeah. You could always tell, you can always you, see you, it. You really can. And I think that my feeling about that is similar to my feeling about, um, about Jimmy where I'm like, like it makes me happy that he has these people to work with who love him. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's James Eha. <laughs> yeah, I know. You know, it's funny because you, you you say that thing about like you know seeing the love in the photo, and you know I'm I'm looking at this and like I mean the photographs of Jimmy and Darcy are quite nice, but you just don't get that same feeling. I mean, from them. the thing about Jimmy and Darcy is that they're really attractive people. <laughs> yes. I mean James and Darcy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. J- Jimmy's just kind of like a like a big beefy dude. I think Jimmy could be attractive, but not yeah. in as conventional a way. Like James and Darcy could be models. Yeah, they, they kind of have like this exotic kind of '90s model vibe. Yeah, they're like skinny and kind of sulky, deadpan looking. Yeah, yeah, James Eha in particular. I think like there's this, there's just something about him. He has a real magnetism, and you know, yeah. Like, I mean, I, that's I, not to discount him as a musician at all. I think he's also a great songwriter and a great guitar player. Yeah, but uh, I think, I think Billy knew what he was a... doing when he when he drafted those two into the band. Because especially when you look at like magazines from the '90s, I mean, there's it's a very one good looking band. There's one I have. I mean, there's a, actually a few of them where you know Billy Corgan is sort of marginalized in in a, in a front cover photo to kind of mm-hmm. make to kind of really foreground uh, James Eha. Yeah. And you, if you were to look at it, you'd be like, "Oh, James Eha is probably the guy in the band. He's probably the lead singer." <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I think it's. Uh... They probably were great friends, and I'm just only seeing I think that's like the true. conflict of it. Um, I think they were together for a lot. I mean, they spent like almost yeah. <laughs> every day yeah. together for like ten years, and then can you imagine like... spending every day with Billy Corgan for ten years? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, it seems it seems like a very rough thing. Um, I mean, like if Billy Corgan from like 1994 called me up and asked me to marry him, like I'd I'd think about it, uh, <laughs> and I still think that that's a very tall order. Like I I would have to say to myself, like Juliet, you're getting into some shit. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny. I I actually think that, yeah, I, I I can imagine if 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 the 
<laughs> I can imagine him being really into you. That seems, <laughs> that seems totally logical. You actually seem very much his type. Thank you. Except like for the except so. for maybe the current day Billy Corgan, uh, where his no. type kind of gets younger and younger and younger. Well, yeah, I mean, he's no longer my type either, and probably wasn't in the nineties either. Yeah. Um, I like to think that I couldn't fall in love with a person who could become uh, like an Alex Jones guy, but. I will say about Billy Corgan, uh, present day Billy Corgan, is that, you know, I don't think he actually married uh, the woman he's with, but he has two children with her. And Oh, he had another one? I remember Jupiter. Yes, Augustus. A funny thing about that, her name is Chloe. And uh-huh. I remember it, one of the, I remember reading an article that was saying like one of the, the possible title for the record that became Melancholy was Jupiter and Chloe. And, you know. Really? Yeah, uh, but I think she. I think she's been really good for him. I think like he has chilled out considerably, like since mm-hmm. being with her. I think uh, being a father has been really good for him. Uh, it's yeah. something that he put off a really long time. I mean, I think that uh, there is deep down uh, something really square in him oh yeah absolutely like uh well that's the sports guy in him for sure oh my god yeah well yeah like the dorky midwest guy like he grew up feeling like weird and different and effeminate and whatever um and that led him to become like an acid head and an artist (laughs) uh but there's still like uh deep down in the personality type, something that needs like marriage and children and that kind of stability in order to feel fulfilled. Mm. Uh, I think not everybody is like that. Um, But I could see that having um, uh, uh, giving him like a, a real like security that was necessary for him to not act like a complete psycho. Right. And he had that really awkward phase where he was like dating, like, oh, what is her name? Like Tia Tequila, like things like that. It was just, oh, God. Like, re- and, uh, oh, what's her name? The, uh, the, oh, God, I'm blanking on her name. Jessica Simpson. He dated Jessica Simpson? Yeah, for a little while. Yeah. He, the, 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 the aughts were a really weird time for him. Yeah. See, I was not paying attention to him at that time. Like I was the, like that, that whole era. Not. Yeah. <laughs> like that whole era where it's like, I mean, there was also a period of time where he was back with Courtney Love. And oh, he, well, yeah, because he they did celebrity skin together. Well, no, no. I mean, after that, I mean, like in oh. the middle of the aughts, and oh. like he, like, and he was kind of like, and there was like a, a stretch of time where he was like a father figure to uh, Francis Bean. Because she's still a minor. Is that real? Yes. Yeah, that's all real. And yeah, it's and it's also this thing. Then you realize, oh, <laughs> I mean, his. Uh, I mean, his. I don't know. I, I don't know what to call her. Like his partner uh, is younger than Ferenc's Bean. Yeah. A fun, a fun fact for you: she was born after Siamese Dream. Yeah, I mean, 
I I mean, I don't want to age. I don't, I don't really. I'm not really one of those like, oh, let's shame the age gap people. But it, it is weird a little. It uh, makes one uh, look askance. Yes. But, you know, I don't know what their relationship is like. Again, I think they have I, I a imagine good that he's very emotionally immature. <laughs> yeah. From what I've observed, they have a good relationship, and that's like the most you can ask for other, you can hope for. for How other can people. you, like, there, there is no way that you can know what a celebrity's romantic relationship is like. I, well, he's, I, I've seen them together on, like, he does, like, these little things on Instagram Live a lot. You know, Ugh. this like all the all, all the observation I've done, I do pay attention. Okay, is, uh, I don't mean to impugn your expertise. Right. I mean, look, look, I think your point stands, but <laughs> uh, yeah, but you know, I, I've observed enough where it's like, but my instinct on it is like, this seems this seems as good as it's going to be for him. Yeah, I'm probably. I don't, you know, the Billy Corgan that I'm like engaged with is is the one that. Uh, was formed in my mind when I was 12. (laughs) (laughs) And like the reality of Billy Corgan has limited uh, intrigue for me. This this man who is just eternally trapped like a rat in a cage. (laughs) Yes. Like a fly in amber. (laughs) What what are other like big songs for you uh, by the podcast? Okay. Um, I think, uh, Set the Rate of Jerry is probably, but like for me personally, what's like the songs that are most meaningful to me? Uh, I really like Through the Eyes of Ruby. Like that's a song that is so it's like drenched in self-pity and drama and like romantic disappointment and like the kind of shit that you would be ashamed to write in your diary if you were me. Uh, But if you're Billy Corgan, you'd, you'd, like overdub 50 guitars and uh uh make a whole thing out of it dedication to just making it so fucking big like 
No, we're gonna have more overdubs, and it's it's wild to me. I mean, the scale and, and of really that song, admirable. Like the yeah, it's huge, and there's a lot of that on melancholy in particular. I think. Um, Porcelina is another like one of the huge ones. Not even just I in like terms of Porcelina, length. but it has like a it's. I mean, that's like a major key song, so it doesn't hit as hard for me. I think is the <laughs> issue. Uh, I really like Cupid Deloc for the same reason. That's a weird song. Oh, that's a, um, that's a really beautiful one too. It is, but I mean, it's so it's so funny to think that. I mean, I don't think it seemed that weird to me at the time, but when you think about going from Siamese Dream to the next record, is has like Cupid Deloc on it. Uh-huh. It's, it that is a, a pretty huge leap. There's more flights of fancy on melancholy that you, that is actually sort of hard to imagine for the guy who, for, for, from Siamese Dream, which I don't think really leaves much room for that sort of thing. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, there's much more of a kind of wander into symbolic imagery, like with the, I think uh, that's telegraphed early on with like the booklet that has like the different, I could probably tell you what all the symbols are for all the songs on the fucking booklet. Uh, the art direction on that album, I think is excellent. Um, I recently uh, got a t-shirt with uh, a version of the melancholy art at Target for $12. Oh, because I was going to say, it. And I was like, well, you know, what? I ha- it's $12. I, I think I have to buy this. Yeah, no sh- What's it look like? I mean, it's a black t-shirt and it kind of mm-hmm. has like a version of the melancholy cover on it. It's it's kind oh. of a sli- it's kind of slightly different art, but you know, you would immediately recognize it and then, you know, it says, you know, melancholy and the infinite sadness on it in that font. One of my um most prized uh yard sale finds is that I have a melancholy shirt that's it has the illustration from the, not the lyric booklet, but the other booklet um, of like little animals smoking hookahs and stuff. Oh yeah, I and know And then this it one. has yeah. the skull and crossbones on the back. That's a shirt that if you get it, like people are selling it on eBay for like three hundred dollars. Oh yeah, I, I mean, all, I mean, all that vintage stuff is is it's it's so funny. Like, I mean, I just this morning. Okay, I, I just want to make sure that your listeners heard. I bought it for a quarter. Yes. Okay. There you go. You. That that's how to do it. I walked by uh, this one uh, vintage store that's in Manhattan on Broadway. Oh, yeah. And in the window, it's just like all like t-shirts that people wore when I was like 14 years mm-hmm. old. You know, just like like the most famous Pearl Jam t-shirts, things like that. And it's just funny to me now that, that now people are 
willing to pay like 200 to 300 dollars for like a pearl jam t-shirt it's, it's now it's like all, all the, the whole window just shifted into like like our teenage years well yeah it's interesting to be vindicated in that way that like because at the time i was not sure that the stuff that i was into was going to be the cool stuff later on I'm not even sure if the Pearl Jam stuff's cool, but I feel like there's probably some kitsch Pearl value. Pearl Jam's cool. I mean, I like Pearl Jam a lot. Uh, That's not the same. But it's, uh, but <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's a there's an overwhelming earnestness about Pearl Jam that that I think kind of reads as kitsch to people now. Yeah, they're even more earnest than the Smashing Pumpkins. Well, the because Pumpkins kind of think... have like this weird, have an artsiness to them, and there's yeah. kind of a... You know, like Billy Corgan has a weird sense of humor. Whereas Pearl Jam, really, yeah, he is, really does. Like Pearl Jam is is, is a, it's a different vibe. It's it's much more earthy. I mean, I think the most similar thing to Pearl Jam is really like Bruce Springsteen, but people mm-hmm. don't necessarily yeah. connect those dots as much as they probably should. Yeah, I wouldn't have come up with that on my own, but I think you're right. I mean, listen to I the voices. Mm-hmm. Who else does that kind of yarly voice? Like <laughs> there's, there's kind of a direct a line yarl. between Vetter and and uh, Springsteen. And they they both have the same shtick where it's like, yeah, we're gonna play three hours, you know, you know. So like Bruce Springsteen drops "Born to Run" where they would drop "Alive" and everybody goes crazy. It's, it's the same shtick. <laughs> yes, th- the Smashing Pumpkins are much more like operatic, right? They're really the, the- kind of not trying to level with you, <laughs> right? Everything has to be on Billy's terms. Like he has that kind of. Uh, and this is this this really did not work for him for a while because he developed such a contrary attitude and he just wanted to like you know well, challenge so the precious. audience. Like the it audience makes you want to wanna bully. It makes you want to bully him. Yeah, like it, Marilyn Manson a- making him snort <laughs> sea monkeys or whatever. Like you can see that happening, right? I don't know if that really happened or not. I know it was. Well, I mean, I know that there's that that kind of famous that part from like a spin article. I think it was about Soundgarden, but like we're, we're like Kim Thale from Soundgarden is just kind of bullying him. Mm-hmm. I I mean, it, it you kind of want to bully him, right? I mean, he's he's he definitely kind of opens himself up to be like, oh, that guy gets a wedgie. Mm-hmm. Even though he's like six foot four. <laughs> I think like it's like six six actually. He's no, he's a gigantic he's man. He is very large. Just a, a very big man. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know he holds himself as if he would like to take up less space you know he's very slouchy right he and, doesn't own it the way like a thurston moore does you know like thurston moore just like really luxuriates in being a super tall lanky guy i mean i think that there uh the size of a person is not just about like things that you can measure physically like your presence is a big part of it. Uh, you can have like tall guy energy and not be a tall guy. Right. Uh, and I think that he tries very hard not to have tall guy energy. Yeah. That, that makes sense. Like it well, it's like the, you know, there's a literal and metaphorical slouching. Mm-hmm. I'm not, this, this might just be like completely untrue, but I don't think people quite valued height then and <laughs> now because people really fetishize height now but i don't think that was as much the case then it's because um like dating via profile 
is much more of a thing. Yeah. Like it's quantifiable. People quantify themselves more. Right. And they, like they can, the whole idea of like, well, okay, I'm just going to like, because I mean, a lot of like those apps will kind of give you the opportunity to just filter out anybody who's mm-hmm. shorter than whatever height you put in. So yeah, yeah, I think I think that being so quantifiable and filterable, yeah, that, that's got to be a big part of it. I think. Uh, so my favorite song on Melancholy is "Through the Eyes of Ruby." Uh, I would also say shout out to Stumbling, oh, Stumbling which is like, great. yeah, it's like a pretty unassuming little song, but also just like a real heartbreaker to me. <sighs> Mommy's Nobody in the manger with the little kids. Anything about me? It's very good. Um, I like the way that song kind of threads between uh, that and XYU. Yeah, it's a it's a really interesting little story that goes on there. Um, Did you hear that? <laughs> was that? That was Billy's voice. Because I just like I, I had my phone up for a second and I, I happened to click like Billy Corgan's right now doing a live broadcast. Right now? Yes. God, Billy, shut up. He he loves being on Instagram live and he likes like talking. He was talking to some woman. I don't know who he she was. He needs so much attention. I mean, <laughs> there are some things that he put up like uh, in the past week or two where it's just kind of like 40 minute monologues about something about like the buried self or something like he, he, he really, you know, it's kind of a logical conclusion of him that of course he, he just becomes like increasingly that guy. Just like travels farther and farther up his own ass. Right. Right. And also trying to under, like he was talking about trying to, like trying to something about trauma. Yeah. And that's that's a big, I mean, that's something that was always a fascination to him and always a motivational, like 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 a real driver of the art. I mean, Do you remember disarm. when he had a live journal? Oh, yeah. It's a good one. God. Yeah, like, I mean, yeah. It was very interesting. But I remember uh, when he was writing it being like, geez, why would you tell people this? <laughs> yes, right. Because he was basically writing like, it was like portions of a memoir that's never been published. Yeah, um, he was but- talking about like how sad he was during his wedding and like yes. seeing his stepmother's tits and stuff. Yeah. I mean, that story about his wedding, that's the thing that, that really, really sticks sad. with me. It is like, cause he, and he's a, he's a good comic. writer. It really I, stuck with me. Uh, I wrote a comic called uh world within the world, uh, <laughs> where, uh, Athanasius Kierker takes me on a journey of the self and um, we travel down a river uh, that is fed by the tears of people that I used to love. And one of them is Billy Corgan crying because uh, uh, his wife didn't take his name. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> that was, th- I mean, I know that he's that kind of guy, but it still was hard to read for me. Do you have any feelings about Gish? Oh, I love Gish. Um, yeah, I have lots of feelings about Gish. Uh, what is my favorite song on Gish? I think it might be Bury Me. Oh, interesting.
one of the I'm it's it's like almost sexy. It's kind of sexy. Yeah. I mean, it's really fun. There's there's a sensuality to Gish. It's like yeah, that's for sure. Um it's there's a lot of like very catchy songs on there like Tristeza. Tristessa. Yeah. Tristeza is a band. Um and Bury Me is like just a shade darker than that. I think I Am One is great. I I Am One was my favorite song for a long time. Uh, Shiva is really fun also. Uh, and those songs are so like, they're kind of messy virtuoso songs. Like, he really wants to show off his guitar playing. They're not really about very much. I've always you know really I mean? loved Rhinoceros. Yeah, that's great for you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and no, Suffer I, I, as well. Suffer is a great one. Suffer is great. Um, yeah, but I think I just gravitate towards those more raw songs. Like Rhinoceros is very s- soft. Yeah. Like Liquid Peppermint. Oh, that's, you know, yeah, that's from um, the line from Crush. Mm-hmm. That's I mean, I, I I love that line, like the liquid peppermint line. It's it's just yeah. really it, it, there's something about that. It's a really great line. The, it's a very melty record. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. He was it's, on so much acid when he was making that record. It's very fluid. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's those like more raw kind of rock and roll songs that appeal to me more from that era. Um, like uh, Slunk, I really like. Oh yeah, which is is a, on an EP. It's like a B side, but and it, it's a stupid song, right? Like, what are the lyrics? That's "Ride on, motherfucker, you <laughs> yeah. talk shit like a chump." really just them fucking around it is but it's really fun um oh okay so another one of my all-time favorite pumpkin songs is uh jesus loves his babies you know that song a little i mean i that's i know that mainly is i think that's like uh one of the extra songs on the reissue of pisces yeah it's like oh i mean i don't know if it was i don't know if how it has been officially released when i heard it it was one of those songs that you had to like trade bootlegs with somebody to get Another one of those like kind of big muff pop songs that uh, 
doesn't have like lyrically there's not a ton of content is uh jesus loves his babies outside in the sunshine i don't mind i don't mind um but then it but it's very catchy it's really fun to listen to uh it's very energetic and it's short and it ends with um <laughs> do you know this it's uh like billy saying uh hey this is billy leave a message and i'll get back to you beep <laughs> And then I think it's probably James's voice uh, a little bit distorted saying, Billy, this is Jesus. I'm very angry with you, <laughs> Billy. I'm going to punish you. Ah, 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 ah. I'm going to punish you. Do you hear me, Billy? I hope you're listening, Billy. <laughs> that is like the fun version of like uh, that song on uh, Machina, uh, Glass and the Ghost Children, where he has uh-huh. the excerpts of him, like, I guess, talking to a therapist or something. Is that, I haven't heard that. Is that real? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, really? And he's like, he's talking about being like, like, you know, like, am I a megalomaniac? Like, you know, it's just he's, he's, it's he was recording like sessions with his therapist, and he just kind of clipped it into Jesus like this instrumental Christ. part of that song. Oh my, demagoguery in my life about me thinking that my life has importance might might be thinking that my life has importance might 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 thought of it on the fact that I believe that I'm following my intuition, which in and of itself may be completely false. Mm-hmm. So then I started freaking out, thinking in and of itself may be completely false. Mm-hmm. And again, this totally insane creature who believes that he's acting upon kind of heavenly intuition, but meanwhile, he's, he's totally rampant. And I started thinking maybe this was the cause of all the negativity against him. And I started thinking maybe this was the cause of all the negativity against him. I mean, that's one of the songs I really like on that record, uh, Glass and the Ghost Children. It's, uh, it's I guess it's that's rec- that record's answer to Silver Fuck. Hmm. And, you know, Silver Fuck has that the, 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 the kind of some, some kind of like radio call in advice thing in it. Oh, yeah. Um, it's kind of weird and kind of hard to talk about. But when we start getting physical, he ends up just masturbating himself and i end up feeling very alienated and unsatisfied and this could really come between yeah. us i appreciate that you had that memorized yeah that's i'm surprised that i do but apparently i do uh, <laughs> and it ends with him saying all right this take don't give a fuck it would be fun to kind of just uh, send that question to various advice columnists <laughs> send it to dan savage Send it to Heather Haverleski yeah. and to see what they can do with it. See if they even figure out what it's from. I mean, well, we're talking; those are both Gen Xers. They might Nobody catch cares. it, but maybe. Yeah, uh, I think my favorite song from Siamese Dream is probably Geek USA. Oh, that's that's one of my favorites in the whole catalog. It's uh, the th- it's another one of those ones that has a really like slow, pretty interlude in the middle with like bells and stuff. That's a song that only they could do. Like that specific mm-hmm. group of people. Um, 
Yeah, that's a song that like if somebody asked me what are the Smashing Pumpkins, that it, it's one of the songs that I would play for them first. It's because it, I mean, it has like three different movements that cover three different kind of Smashing Pumpkins vibes. Uh, that maybe Geek USA is their sexiest song. And the thing that I really love in that song is like when the song really kicks back in and he says, words can't define what I feel inside. Who needs them? Who needs them? Oh, what a great part. Especially it's because it really Caught fits like the velocity of it. of my mind. Yeah. Um, that's very Billy. I give in to the disease of my needs. Uh, my really good uh, misheard Smashing Pumpkins lyric is not even mine. Somebody else told me it and now i cannot sing this song other than this way uh which is in rocket uh soon we'll find ourselves alone to masturbate away (laughs) (laughs) which the real lyric is to relax and fade away but masturbate away is much better i think a a little erotic for billy Uh, yeah no he would not (laughs) i mean he's he's a little priss a little bit a lot uh, I think. What's your favorite song in Pisces Iscariot? Oh, Starla, hands down. Mm. Starla and then Frail and Bedazzled. Those are two huge ones for me. Frail and Bedazzled is really good. Hello Kitty Cat is really good. Mm. Um, and. I mean, I like pretty much. I everything really like La Dolly Vita. Oh, that one's great. It's really beautiful. I like the like the, the, it's, the it's an animal song, like "Girl Named Sandoz." That I mean, that has that yeah, same Girl the same Sandoz powerful energy as the like Siva and Geek USA. Mm-hmm. That's a really fun song. Like it feels like they are having fun playing it. That's how I feel about uh, "You're All I've Got Tonight." Also, that's like an all-time favorite cover for me. Yeah, like, of anybody that has ever covered any song, because it just seems like they're having a really good time. I think in an 
something I read him talking about recording that and how he like had a bunch of friends come over and was trying to make them stomp <laughs> in time and how they wouldn't do it. And it sounded like shit because that, that's, because that's, he's that guy. I think it sounds great. I think it sounds like a bunch of people listening to a really awesome song and stomping together. Like I, I really like the Destination Unknown cover there and the clones. <laughs> those are, I mean, that's a really fun. Like, those are the, the the covers that are on the Butterfly Wings like extended single. Yeah. And, uh, oh. and James does a night like this by The Cure. Yeah. There's the He's- Dreaming by Blondie. Yeah. It's kind of like the, the their lost covers album is just kind of they just yeah. got a, a, I mean, a few more songs they could have just like thrown it out as like Touching Pumpkins do another you know classic covers album. Okay. Um and two of my all-time favorite Smashing Pumpkins songs are on the Zero single and they are Marquee and Spades and Pennies. Oh, I know you love Pennies. Haven't I seen I know, you sing I that sang karaoke? I karaoke one You're time. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I sang it. It didn't have like the lyrics with it, and the timing was a little off, which stressed me out. But uh, that's a beautiful song, and I think that that is an underrated um, talent of his to write. Like He writes very good pop songs that are just like really light and effervescent and sweet, like uh, in the way that like a Beach Boys song can be so light and frothy and then like also just rip your guts out. the song let me give the world to you yeah i mean that was like if if he had the sense to have put that on a door the record probably would have sold like another like five hundred thousand copies <laughs> i think um uh once in a while was an adore b-side that i thought was really good mm. you know that one yes it was a it was a ava adore b-side there were, it was that and Zarino, which I think is one of their worst songs. <laughs> there, there's a there's a bunch of songs in Adora that are just really. I mean, I love the song to Sheila, the opening yeah, it's song. It's, I think that's one of the prettiest songs he ever wrote. Mm-hmm. For sure. A summer star graces all of me. Highway walk. Sing silent poetry And I could bring you The light And take you home Into the
I've always liked that line, discard my friends to change the scenery. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a great way to open the album uh, because it seems to pick up where Melancholy left, left off. But also like clearly changing everything to really like really announcing that this is a much smaller record. Um. I think right now I'm going to say my favorite song on Adore may be Blank Page. Hmm. What about Blank Page? Uh, it's kind of a piano song. Yeah. Um, I mean, I used to really like For Martha, which is like, a more of a like epic heartbreaky song um, about his mother dying. <laughs> uh, but I think maybe blank page feels the most um, intimate. Yeah. I think it's the most intimate song of that album. Um, Which is saying something. There's a, there's a few songs that are just really super small. I think I like Annie Dog is, is similarly very intimate <laughs> and small. There's something too cute about Annie Dog to me. Hong Kong glue, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> song that's one of the ones i never really cared for um 
yeah, it kind of has. Yeah, what the thing the I also remember it? it has that kind of like that very like dun, 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 dun. I, I can't sing the part. I don't. I, I haven't heard this in a while, but it has. You know, it, it's it's very piano focused song. Oh, who am I to need you now? To ask you why? To tell you no? Yeah. Who am I? That's one. Yeah. Uh, I don't I like know. Pug a lot too. Pug's always <laughs> that's a fun one. I I do like Pug. Um. Yeah. Why that song is called Pug, we'll never know. Did you ever see the thing that he said about uh, like how he comes up with a name for a song that it's like you, I think it's like you write a song about the uh, a lamp and the color of the lamp is red and uh, you remember that Red is like the color that you're not supposed to wear in front of a bull, so you name the song Cow. <laughs> I mean, when so, you, when yeah, you write that many no songs, you, you, you kind of need like these strategies of what the hell to call these things. I guess like mayonnaise. Right. I have no that, idea why that, that song is, is called a that. Extraordinary song. It really is. Why is it called that? I Name, named after our gloopiest to... condiment. I mean, I think to me, the song is really evocative of like, it's really nostalgic as a lot of his uh, imagery is. There's something like bittersweet and it, to me, the whole, uh, all of Siamese Dream feels very much like summertime to me. Um, And, you know, that's like a condiment that I associate with like cookouts and like I could see it also misspelled <laughs> yeah he's not a good speller oh, oh, like, I'm, I'm, I thought when I read the booklet of um, Siamese dream or 
not so mainstream. Um, when I read the booklet of Pisces Iscariot for the first time, I thought that was an affectation, but that is just how he writes. <laughs> uh, I, I, I was going to mention Soma. So I know you love Soma. I, I think Soma is really great, but it's not, it's like not one that I personally vibe with a lot. I wonder if Soma is a really boy song. I think everyone I can think of who has a very powerful feeling about that song, they're, they're all just, there's boys. Hmm. I say that abstractly. <laughs> that might be. In, in the I, I I keep like making this reference to boy, and it's like it's I'm think, I'm remembering something that Courtney Love said at some point where she was describing as like oh that's very boy. Yeah, and the, the, like in the way that Courtney Love would say that with like both admiration and dismissiveness, and I feel like that's mm-hmm. the exact right way to say that. Yeah, I can see it. Do you like uh, the songs that he wrote with her, uh, like a Celebrity Scan and Malibu? I do. Um, I really like Malibu a lot, actually. Hmm. I have no like particular feelings about it in the sense that I uh they're like a little slick for me and also that I really have no particular feelings about California. I've been there like a couple of times, it's fine, I guess. Uh and it it's very like uh very into like the romance of California, which really only works for me if it's like Desperados under the eaves or something. Yeah. I, I was thinking about that record recently. It kind of it kind of came back to mind. And I was listening to it, and I was thinking about it. And it never really hit me that like, because uh, that's the first record she did after "Live with This." I lived through this. Sorry, mm-hmm. and there is a certain kind of, uh, you know, that that, that record even before Kurt Cobain died is just so heavy with grief that yeah. I think that you know, kind of disappearing into this kind of. Uh, California hedonism, like which is also kind of sad. It feels like a, a also another version of grief. Yeah, I mean, there's a tradition of LA noir, kind of a like it's very glamorous here, and we're sad about it. It's it's. Right. I think Malibu is absolutely written about music and records and movies and things. You know, it's, it's, it's drawing on that rather than being directly about the place Malibu. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Celebrity skin is about being about those things. It's like, uh, I don't know, kind of Lana Del Rey in that way. Yeah, Which wow. Again, like, I, I hadn't really put me. that together, but yeah, that like uh, celebrity skin sort of predicts her in some ways. Yeah. I mean, it's very much like, what if we buy into all of this like glam fantasy, but at the same time, we feel bad about it? Like, And we're also making fun of it a little. Yeah. What if we just had our cake and ate it too? Well, you know. She... It's too self-aware for me. I she think. wants to be the girl with the most cake. Oh, it is the cake. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think we can wrap it up now. 
unless there's okay. some there's another song or something that you you would like to bring up i mean there's probably a lot that after this i'm gonna be like why didn't i talk about this again marquee and spades i think is really great god is also really good uh those are like some really angry songs and i i, I like the angry songs a lot um like bodies i think is great oh also. that's a great one yeah no bodies felt like you yeah and love is suicide <laughs> that one that is, is so wild. over that's the top wild to say that shit out loud yes yes he is uh like even for him like bodies is way over the top but good for him like this to me is this is like the sacred duty of an artist just to say the shit that you need to say I can't. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, yeah. Coming back to what we were saying at the start, it's this. He is unashamed. He will do it. He will go there. He has to. He. It's almost like he's like in, he knows that people make fun of him. He knows that, but he also knows that people need it. And there's there's the people will you know, especially with a record like Melancholy, that the world was there for. The people were feeling it. The you know that record. You know, I, I always I've always thought about how like the song uh, 1979, like the core audience, the, the the target audience were born in 1979. Like that's yeah. when I was born. Like, I was 15 when the record came out. You know, it's just like the like he, I think in some way he knew that he was making even if he was writing about his adult experiences, he was writing for that audience. I think that there's so much like uh, ornateness and like extra extraness with him um but it is always to um it's because something more ordinary or more comfortable would not be big enough for the feelings and that's a philosophy that i really carry with me like that's why i gravitate towards supernatural horror those are the kind of stories that i write um because the ordinary is just not enough. Like you have to make it bigger than it is. Uh, you have to choose like really big imagery aesthetically. You have to give yourself a space that ordinary aesthetics don't allow. Yeah. What, well, what, role does this music have in your life now as as an adult like do you listen to it often no no rarely um because i listened to it so much when i was a teenager that it is a little bit painful for me mm. i think uh if i listen to the smashing pumpkins i mostly i probably would listen to uh I don't know, like something live or like those uh, pre-gish bootleg kind of things, something that is not so familiar to me. Right. I think that I, I do that with a lot of things where like, I'll just listen to the live version of a thing just because it's slightly different. I don't anticipate every single moment of it. I mean, I know every single note of all those albums, like every beat, even like the weird little... I mean, like, you quoted uh, the whole Silver Fuck like uh, 
radio call. Yeah. <laughs> that's it's or pretty like deeply a, internalized if that's the case. If you listen to Set the Ray to Jerry, like right before he says, let roar these fears, there's like a little echoing kind of do 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 thing. Like, I'm, you won't hear it unless you're listening for it, but I'm always listening for it. So I can't. It's just too familiar. Yeah. But it's like in me, you know, that the way that those songs made me feel uh, and the beauty of them is still with me, just not in a way that I need to have direct contact with by listening to them again. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I like to do is just kind of have like, you know, a good amount of time off from certain things and, you know, up to like years at a time of just like, I don't really listen to that anymore so that you can have, you can kind of come back to it and have a, a fresh experience. That even, even something you've so deeply internalized from it being like super music. You listen to like a million times as a kid, as a teenager. Yeah. And there's, you know, two examples of that in the recent past was, I had not listened to either Fugazi or R.E.M. in any meaningful capacity for a good while, but coming back Mm. to it, you know, having it feel fresh again. Mm. And, you know, I I think the times when I come back to the pumpkins, the pumpkins really requires that kind of space. I think there's some songs that that I have like more recurrent play, but like, you know, the deeper stuff, like, um, I think like some at some point last fall, I, I it was I think it was like the twenty fifth anniversary of Melancholy, and I just listened to the whole thing straight through. I hadn't listened to the whole thing straight through in ages, and yeah, just having I did that, that on experience with it again. I did that on like one of the times that I was driving between New York and New Hampshire, where my family is. I just listened to it all the way through and did not skip any tracks. Yeah, no skips. It's, it's really a journey, man. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the amazing things about that record in particular is that it. it I I think there's a lot of like double albums, like double CDs, what have you, where you be like, oh, okay, yeah, there's there's a lot of like skippable stuff here, but I don't think that record has that because it because re- you pull anything out of it and the rhythm all falls apart. And the, there's uh, a real narrative to it. Yeah, um, I think even if you don't really listen to the lyrics, it's it still has that kind of like journey aspect to it Mm -hmm. and that's as like a a sequential artist like i can tell you as a cartoonist like you put two things together and your brain fills in the in-between and you know you string a series of images together and it becomes a narrative even if those even if you didn't plan it that way um but I think there is a deliberate arc to the story of melancholy. And even if you couldn't necessarily, you could probably spell it out. I'm sure somebody somewhere on Usenet has done that. Uh, but it's not over the way that like Machina had like a whole narrative. Right. But but it kind of got disrupted because it was meant to be a larger work and then was kind of cut down. And it's like making a jerk off motion. Right. Uh, I mean, he he announced uh, at some point in 2020 that the record he's he's working. He's been working on like a bunch of records simultaneously uh, mm -hmm. as he would do. But one of the records that he's been working on 
is like, you know, he likened it to being like a melancholy and a machina kind of record where it is this grand, like, thing that has like this like internal themes and you know it's like, like one of the you know it's that kind of record it's so he's so grandiose yeah i hope but, he releases it in in quadraphonic it's it's a but you know what melancholy is a double this one's a triple wow because he has to go bigger of course that's does. that's our that's our guy god bless him america's stepson billy corgan <laughs> julia how can people find you Oh, um, well, like I said, I'm Thorzos on everything. I'm on Twitter and uh, uh, Patreon. and Three books in uh, stores now. Oh, yeah, that's true also. Um, and uh, on Etsy and on Threadless. And I don't know. You can Google me. I, I'm i I'll, I'll include links. I'll, I'll, I'll put a link in. But yeah, I, I think um, if you want really cool goth t-shirts, then I think you want to hit up that Threadless for sure. If you oh, want yeah. really good comics, you should. Uh, what What is the best place to find? Oh, just going directly to uh, Fanagraphics? You can buy them for me on Etsy. Oh, there you go. That's probably the best thing to do. Yeah. But yes, Uh there is a character in your most recent book that is like loosely modeled on me, which I appreciate. Yes, that's true. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you're uh, Dr. Bishop, the um, hot optometrist. Yes. Very, uh, I'm, I'm very proud of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You get to finger somebody in a handsome cab. How's that feel? <sighs> I mean, better than my regular life. <laughs> Julia, thank you so much for coming uh, on. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. And of course, I end up masturbating myself and I end up feeling very alienated and unsatisfied and it's really come between us.